0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: The Bayeux Tapestry ranks as surely one of the most famous pieces of medieval artwork. Yet it's not actually a tapestry, and it probably wasn't made in Bayeux. It tells the story of the Norman Conquest, but misses out some crucial details, including two of the three big battles fought in England in 1066. It features sex and violence, myths and fables, and even has the hand of God. We don't know how it ends, but we do know that it's supposed to be coming to the UK on loan from Normandy at some point in the next few years. So now is the time to really get to grips with the tapestry story in our new History Extra podcast series, unravelling the bio-tapestry. Join me, David Musgrove, tapestry expert, Professor Michael Lewis, and a panel of other leading historians, including Michael Wood and Janina Ramirez, for our exclusive five-part series. Available to listen to now at historyextra.com forward slash tapestrypod. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 1949 was a pivotal year in Chinese and global history. The Nationalist Government of Chiang Kai-shek was overthrown by Mao Zedong's communist forces creating the regime that still rules China today. The story of 1949 is told in a new book by the historian and journalist Graham Hutchings, and he spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar about the reasons for Mao's victory and why its legacy is so important today.
2: At the start of the year you cover, 1949, what is the general situation in China and with the civil war that's raging there?
3: It's the start of year three, of the Civil War. It's conventionally thought to run between the middle of 1946 to 1949, but in fact, it is an issue that has been long running in Chinese history, dating from the later 1920s when uh, Mao Zedong's communists, he wasn't in full charge then, but we might call them that for this purpose, and Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists fell out over how to rule China and waged war against each other Um, albeit on a relatively small scale, Uh, and that reached a culmination after the defeat of Japan in the Second World War, when both sides fell upon each other on a large scale. Now, the first two years or thereabouts of that large-scale conflict had taken place by the start of 1949, and Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, the recognized government of the Republic of China, was on its uppers. It had lost Manchuria, the industrial heartland of northeast China. It was on the point of losing nearly all north China, north of the Yangtze. So Chiang Kai-shek in his capital of Nanjing at the start of January 1949, is in a real fix.
2: And so why have things gone so wrong for the nationalists up to this point? Because, you know, they had a lot of Western aid. They were the, the, the government of China. Why was, was everything going against them?
3: It's a, um, a a complex issue, this one. We can isolate some factors and we ought to start perhaps at the top with Chiang Kai-shek's Somewhat inept strategic leadership, both on the political fronts and especially on the military fronts. He was fighting an insurgency, but not fighting it how an insurgency should be fought. He was holding the lines of communications, he was holding the major cities, he was not making forays out into the countryside that would denude Mao Zedong's Communist Party of their military and political support. On the political front he had failed to galvanize the Chinese nation. To be sure he'd done that to some extent with his victory insofar as it was his over Japan, celebrated famously in August uh, 1945. But he'd squandered that by mismanaging his cause, failing to rally the people and a third element that we shouldn't Uh, Neglect his mismanagement or his government's mismanagement of the economy. It had been racked by uh, inflation, Uh, savings had uh, all, all but disappeared, assets were extremely vulnerable. The core support of China's educated urban people on which he might be expected to rely. Wasn't there. Now, we placed a lot of emphasis on Chiang Kai shek and his errors and shortcomings. We ought not to forget that there is a positive side to the story for Mao's communists. I suppose we ought to focus immediately on the first big thing which Mao promised to the peasants and had done so pretty well from this period of split that we referred to earlier in the the late 1920s and that was land. If you sign up to the communist revolution Mao and his senior comrades said you'll get land and in land hungry China uh, that was a promise to be taken very seriously. So if you just think about the armies of the two sides both of them Uh, inevitably formed very largely from country boys, those who fought for the communists knew that when the war was over they'd get land, those who fought for the nationalists weren't sure what they'd
2: get. So for the nationalist soldiers they may just return to the status quo whereas Mao was promising something new and potentially better?
3: They had what you might say three disadvantages or lack of motivations uh, of which uh certainly the one you mentioned uh, was important. Alongside that, there was no real cause that they were fighting for, a, a political cause that could inspire them. And uh, unlike those, generally speaking, on the red side of the equation, on the communist side, they were badly treated whilst in the army, poorly paid, poorly fed, badly treated by their officers. So there wasn't really much skin in the game for them.
2: And then, so when your book opens at the start of 1949, to what extent do you feel the outcome of the war is already decided?
3: There were many observers who thought so, and it would uh, really be asking for a lot uh, if one expected Chiang Kai-shek to reverse his fortunes at this stage. But we ought not to move from that premise to the conclusion that it was all done and dusted, and that uh, the shape of China... Uh, at the end of 1949, beginning of 1950, was predetermined. Because Chiang Kai-shek, in January 1949, realising how weak and vulnerable his position was, essentially decided he'd have to step down and sue for peace. He thought if he sued for peace with the communists, he would gain time. He'd gain time to strengthen the defences in the South. He'd gain time, perhaps, of the kind that might persuade the Americans under Truman, to bankroll him and provide him with fresh military supplies. He gained time, moreover, to perhaps form a coalition government with the Chinese communists of the kind that left a role, if not for him personally, but for uh, the nationalists uh, as a cause. And therefore, it was worth playing for. It was inconceivable, I think, probably even to him uh, that he could recover lost ground, but he could, if not stop the rot, at least slow it.
2: But on the other side, how prepared were Mao and the other Chinese leaders to accept some kind of compromise, some kind of divided China?
3: They were unprepared to do so, and they realised that they would have to topple Jiang Kai-shek's government. They would have to defeat it. They would have to drive it off the mainland. They had commitment. Uh, they had determination. They had a vision. All those things that we've said the nationalist government under Jiang did not have. Remember that they were certainly the leadership, and particularly Mao, inspired by the Soviet vision of the future. Mao had not yet met Stalin. Stalin had actually turned down requests by Mao to come and visit him. Stalin, the Soviet leader, wanted Mao to concentrate on the revolution at home and not show too much fealty and alliance with the Soviet Union at this delicate stage of the Cold War. But Mao and his senior comrades were in no doubt about their vision for a socialist, a revolutionary, a united China. And they had the armies and they had the generals who had shown over the last year in particular that they could deliver that, and they had no intention of stopping, as it were, halfway at stopping at the North Shore or the North Bank of the Yangtze.
2: And then in 1949, what were the key moments on the military side that led to the Communists taking over essentially all of mainland China? The big thing...
3: Symbolic rather than substantive, because they had been besieged for quite a while, was the fall of the former imperial capital, now the present-day capital of China, Beijing, then known as Beiping for reasons that need not detain us, and the fall of its associated port city of Tianjin. Remember, Manchuria had gone, and with these two cities which fell in January, then all of North China essentially Uh, was lost. The next big event was the one that Jiang and his allies hoped to prevent, and that was the mass crossing of the Yangtze in April 1949. The purpose of peace negotiations was to get the PLA to stand still, to stop them preparing for the great assault across that enormous river that essentially divides China north from south.
2: And so, What's going on at this point with the leadership of of the Nationalists? Because I believe Jiang talked about standing down. How far was he actually in control of that side?
3: He realised that a condition for opening peace talks with the communists was that he would have to absent himself from the scheme of things for a while. So he stepped down as president and he handed over to his vice president, which wasn't a great idea from his point of view in one respect, because his vice president, a man called Li Zongren, was a part of the Guamandung universe that had been at odds with Zhang for many, many years. And so was the man called Bai Chongxi, also from Guangxi in southwest China, who in fact commanded, the best troops on the nationalist side and were sitting in the middle of China and the middle of the Yangtze preparing to ward off a communist attack. So Jiang's house was not only, as we've discussed, not well-motivated, not well-organized, not well-disciplined. It was also a house divided. Zhang, however, was not a man without resource and certainly not a man without guile. He used the period as soon as he stepped down to prepare where he might face his last stand, where he might find a place that was impregnable and from which he could ward off the communist threat. Now, Uh, We know that to be Taiwan, but it wasn't always clear throughout 1949 that he'd always set his heart indefinitely on that place. But that was one of his principal calculations as he stepped down and handed over uh, the conduct of affairs and especially the peace negotiations to his so-called allies, but really rivals within the nationalist camp.
2: And then so why were the nationalists unable to create some kind of negotiation? Was it just the communists' intransigence? Very largely.
3: The idea of the nationalists as they flew to uh, Beijing in April, ironically I suppose on April the 1st, for what they believed to be negotiations, they were soon uh, disabused of this because the communist side made it plain that what the nationalists had come north for was not to negotiate but to surrender. And it was the terms of surrender, the terms of the dissolution of the nationalist government that the communists were interested in, and certainly not uh, a ceasefire, certainly not a coalition government in which there was a significant role for Jiang and his allies. And so it ran up against a wall of negotiating tactics, if one can call them that, that many, many other people, uh, foreigners in particular, would come up against once China was firmly under the grip uh, of the Chinese communists.
2: And how did Western powers react to what was going on in China? How concerned were they by the imminent communist takeover?
3: All were concerned uh, for different reasons. The United States was concerned, of course, because we've got the Cold War taking dramatic shape in Eastern Europe, and now apparently, if Mao was to sweep the country before him, spreading to Asia, the Soviet camp, if you like, would capture the world's most popular nation. That was a matter of grave concern to Washington. There was also another strand in their thinking stemming from the long-standing missionary, cultural, educational, medical commitment and moral commitment to China over many, many years. That, of course, reached something of a fulfillment and culmination in U.S. support for Jiang during the war against Japan. The trouble they had with him was that he was not strong enough to defeat communism. He was not legitimate enough to be worth supporting, but critically, he was too important to quite uh, abandon, at least in the full sense. If one moves from Washington to Moscow, there you see a different perspective, as you'd expect. Stalin, overall, is pleased about the conduct of the Chinese Revolution. Into the red camp of the world is coming this vast nation. But Stalin has his reservations. On the tactical front, they are concerning the extent to which the US would really abandon Jiang. What if, in the last minute, during the course of 1949, US troops would arrive in South China and try and stop the communist? More long-term, Stalin was concerned about the reliability, the ideological orthodoxy of Mao Zedong. What kind of man was this Mao? What kind of Marxist was he? And since the Chinese Revolution um, and the entry as it looked that China's into into this global camp of socialism would largely be a Chinese-made affair, unlike the situation in Eastern Europe where uh, the people's democratic states, as we came to know them, were essentially creatures and creations of the Soviet Union. China was independent. Might Mao seek to bid for leadership of the global socialist camp uh, was one of those fears that also stalked Stalin's mind. He was a man, as we well know, of some neuralgia uh, and of, um, uh, of great fear about his own position. In London, the concern was slightly different. Not best pleased about the prospect of Mao's conquest. Uh, London in the late 1940s was no friend of communism, but there were more material considerations. At least there were in Shanghai, China's great global city, where British business uh, was prominent, uh, where hundreds of millions of dollars were invested, uh, where thousands of British subjects were living and working. If you look further south, they had another concern, and that was not so much profit, but prestige, the colony of Hong Kong. This had been taken uh, from China a 100 years earlier, uh, just over to be precise, and the British didn't want to give it up. But could they hold it? If the PLA were sweeping south at the pace they were throughout 19- 1949, might they stop at the border? Uh, might they not seek to reverse a national humiliation and not only liberate the whole of China but kick the foreigners out from Hong Kong as well so that was one
2: of London's concerns three different perspectives from the capitals at that time and alluding to what you said earlier when you were talking about the Americans was there ever any prospect that the US might throw its full military weight behind Zhang and try to prevent a communist takeover
3: there wasn't There was no serious consideration given to that. It was rather a matter of what kind of demise, what kind of decline, what kind of withdrawal it would be. What the communists were determined to do, though there was some hesitation in certain parts of the State Department for a while, was not to recognize Mao Zedong. That would be conceived as too much of an encouragement to a revolutionary regime too favourable towards the Soviet Union, so best to keep Mao at arm's length and best to retain diplomatic recognition with uh, the Republican government uh, and to Chiang Kai-shek in particular. So not completely to let him go, not to support him, but not to entirely cut him loose.
2: And then on on the subject of Hong Kong, um, as we know, the uh, communist regime didn't then go and try and overrun Hong Kong. Why do you think that was? Were they trying at this early stage to maintain reasonable relations with other global powers?
3: I think there might have been an element of that. There might have been an element of caution about causing too much of a diplomatic rift, particularly as they were at odds with the United States, the communists. But I think there were two other considerations, one much more important than the other, and that is that they had a terrific amount on their plate they had just conquered the country remember at this stage the chinese communist army is really a creature of north china and has been operating in north china for a long time they suddenly in a matter of little more than a few weeks find themselves in possession of all of south china or uh, where they are coming across a language, a cuisine, a culture, a way of life that they are broadly unfamiliar with. They've just taken over a huge country. They have enormous problems on their hands and uh, moving south for all that it has a certain amount of appeal across the border into Hong Kong is regarded as too risky. The other dimension, not to be entirely discounted, though I don't think decisive, is that the British. Because they were concerned that the PLA, Mao's army, might want to have a go, they had significantly reinforced the colony. They'd moved lots of army in, uh, they'd moved fighter planes in, and they'd had a carrier force very close to Hong Kong uh, with the view of um, raising the bar, of uh, acting as a deterrent.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
3: You can think of it as a refugee island uh, at the end of 1949, whose status uh, was very questionable uh, because Mao, uh, just as he'd been determined to cross the Yangtze, was determined to cross the Taiwan Straits and complete his conquest.
4: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments, And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed.
2: Now, in October 1949, the Communist Party declared the founding of their republic. To what extent did they control all of mainland China at that point?
3: They hadn't completed the conquest of the country by the 1st of October. I suppose this shows uh, that uh, they were audacious. I suppose, more realistically, it shows that whilst they hadn't got control. It was only a matter of time before they did. There was certainly no going back. So they were able, on that occasion uh, and the week surrounding it, to lay out the foundations of the People's Republic in an institutional, uh, one might say also a constitutional sense, but also a cultural sense. Because during that period, they put together what many of the features of contemporary China um, still strike us. That is to say, a political mobilization. That is to say, an insistence that the Chinese Communist Party is the supreme arbiter in national life, in political life, in personal life. That is to say, the tearing up of the old legal codes and the creation of new ones uh, that gave formidable power to the executive. And generally, to the sense of frenzy one might almost call it certainly mass participation in politics where the Chinese Communist Party and its leaders set the tone.
2: Looking at the level of the ordinary people what was it like to be a regular Chinese person in 1949 how much were these big events affecting life on the ground?
3: One has to think I suppose in answering that um, uh, First of all, in a cautionary respect, one's talking about between five and six hundred million people, uh, and um, there might not have been five and six hundred million different varieties of opinion, but there were certainly many. So let's approach it from the point of view of three perspectives. One is those who were inspired, let's use that word, by the revolutionary enthusiasm and the communist cause. This, I suppose, had a lot of impact, especially amongst young people, patriotic people, people who were fed up with the weakness, the division, the poverty of their country, and the way in which they saw it had been pushed around by foreigners, most recently the Japanese. The idea that that could never happen again, and that the country might be set on a new course, a new China, as Mao called it, youthful uh, in its revolutionary enthusiasm, was very, very attractive. So many people were inspired by that. There were those, of course, who did not like communism, didn't know much about it, uh, didn't like it, uh, knew quite a bit about it and still didn't like it. Uh, people who had something to lose, something to fear, assets that they had been able to build up, and those in the cities who treasured intellectual freedom for all that Jiang Kai-shek's government was repressive and authoritarian. It wasn't very good even at being a dictatorship. And so the press, uh, the academic world... Uh, even uh, areas of law, there were spaces uh, for freedoms to operate of the kind that seemed very unlikely to flourish once the communists took over. Those people had much to fear, and then there were those who were neither pro-communist um, uh, nor necessarily pro-Guomindang, but who were caught up in the fighting and who wanted to preserve their family and uh, such assets as they had and of course it was many of those people hundreds of thousands of them indeed who took to the roads the railways uh, the ships and if they could get seats on such aircraft as were available um, the planes to escape uh, wherever they could always moving south uh, always moving to the ports many of them ending up in taiwan Many in Hong Kong, many further afield. This is another aspect of 1949. Uh, Alongside the movement of troops from north to south, we see the movement of millions of people uh, to escape the fighting. Displacement, as you always see in a civil war, is a very marked feature of the conflict in China.
2: And how much of a hunger was there within China just for peace after so many years of war with Japan and now civil war? There, was there an element of people just wanting it all to be over?
3: Absolutely. It was a very strong cry uh, reflected in all sorts of ways among the populace. That reminds us, I think, since that cry was really not adhered to by the protagonists on either side, of the determination of the leadership, both the nationalists, the Guomindang, and the communists, to fight to the end – It reflected in the personalities of Jiang and Mao, uh, but there must have been other factors uh, at work. These men felt that compromise was worse than peace. Um, uh, Let me put it another way. Compromise was worse than fighting to the end. They would rather do that. And so the determination of these two men plunged their countrymen and countrywomen into this desperate uh, gruesome civil conflict uh, until uh, it reached a critical
2: outcome with the flight uh, of Jiang to Taiwan and the collapse of his government. Now, Taiwan's come up quite a few times in this conversation already. And so as we know that uh, Zhang's regime ended up, that was their last stronghold in Taiwan. What was it yeah. like for the people already living in Taiwan to suddenly have this Chinese government decamping there and essentially taking over the island?
3: It was very problematic. Taiwan had not been part of the Chinese world in a sense. Uh, Between 1895 and the defeat of Japan after the Second World War in 1945, it was a Japanese colony. Curiously, many of the Chinese in Taiwan uh, rather liked what the Japanese had done in the sense that they built infrastructure, raised living standards, increased educational levels and such like. And when, uh, with the defeat of Japan, they were reincorporated into Jiang's Republican administered part of China, it wasn't a happy occurrence. What came after was even worse for them uh, because they were subject to a massive ingress of soldiery, uh, of desperate civilians, um, and were preparing indeed for the attack that they believed would eventually come from the communists as uh, Mao and his men got control of maritime China. On the other hand, there was uh, another sense At work, because what Jiang could not do in the mainland, he seemed better able to do in Taiwan. For example, they introduced a new currency. For example, they controlled the rate of inflation. And amongst the poor, the distressed, the battle-weary, and indeed the defeated... Among the exiles were people of talent, of educational accomplishment from the mainland. So here were the ingredients, not apparent necessarily by 1949, of the recreation of Taiwan, henceforth to be the base of the Republic of China, still uses that name today, to rise as a Chinese tiger or Chinese dragon economy, which it did, of course, several years later. That was in the future, but you can think of it as a refugee island uh, at the end of 1949 whose status uh, was very questionable uh, because Mao, uh, just as he'd been determined to cross the Yangtze, was determined to cross the Taiwan Straits and complete his conquest.
2: And am I right to say it was actually really the Korean War that, in the end, led to Taiwan surviving?
3: That's absolutely right. Right. Mao Zedong had many promises for his people as he created the People's Republic of China. In fact, nearly the first thing he did was to take them to war in Korea in November 1950 uh, because of fears about US-led UN forces having uh, moved through Seoul up north towards the Chinese border and presenting a threat to his infant regime. It was when the Americans saw Mao do that and realized uh, that this was a potentially disastrous outcome, uh, the loss of Korea and potentially the loss of Taiwan in terms of the broader Cold War, that they decided at last that they would rescue Jiang Kai-shek, not restore him. They didn't want him to return to the mainland, but they were determined now that Taiwan should not be part of the People's Republic of China. They moved in um, June, 1950, the 7th Fleet into the Taiwan Strait and made it clear that Mao's advances in that area would have to stop. So it was events outside China as you say, that rescued uh, Taiwan. For Zhang, who had always believed the Americans would eventually come to his aid, it came too late. He'd lost the mainland, uh, but it did mean he could retain Taiwan.
2: And how long did the nationalist regime in Taiwan retain realistic aspirations to return to the mainland?
3: Well, they never gave it up because it was a key part of their legitimacy. The idea was that we are in Taiwan due to a particular set of circumstances, largely our own failures. They were prepared to admit, but reforms in the military and in the um, uh, in, in political life were all conducted with some rigor and some success with a view to taking back the mainland at some point. And there were crises, the Taiwan Straits crises in the 1950s over the island of Kumoy, quite close to the mainland, very close indeed, which the Nationalists also retained, though it was merely a garrison, not a a human settlement uh, in the conventional sense. So the the, the Guomindang had never given up, the idea of returning, but never at any time were they in a position to accomplish it. And the Americans, anxious to preserve the status quo, were always dissuading them from having a go and curbing their adventurism.
2: Now, how much do you think the legacy of 1949 still shapes China in the region today?
3: I think it does in a host of respects. The institutions, the political patterns of behavior, the apparatus set up in 1949 has, of course, over the years been subject to changes. But the way in which China is controlled domestically and run as a country has its origins in what was unfolded in those weeks surrounding the foundation of the People's Republic in October 1949. The other dimension, of course, and a very significant one, is that 1949 not only changed China, it gave us two Chinas, uh, because Jiang in Taiwan insisted that that was the seat of the Republic of China, uh, that it was the legitimate government of the whole of China, and many countries uh, around the world, uh, not including Britain, but certainly including America and many other Western uh, allies, recognized Taipei, the capital of Taiwan, as the seat of the Chinese government. So that conflict between the two Chinas not only persisted uh, and uh, at times, uh, as the Taiwan Straits crisis suggested, looked like resuming in a significant way on the military front. That remains the situation today. China's civil war is, I think, the longest running, unfinished conflict of its kind. And it so happens that the issue has been brought to renewed salience by the present Chinese ruler, Xi Jinping, who has warned on more than one occasion that this problem of China's national unification cannot be left indefinitely. And what we've seen in as recently as the last few weeks, increasing maritime and aerial incursions into Taiwan, threats that the island Uh, must uh, bend its knee and accept some sort of arrangement whereby it loses its independent status and returns to what the mainlanders regard as the motherland. So the legacy of 1949 is not only uh, very apparent from a glance at the current international news headlines, there is a strong sense in which uh, it might re-emerge is a major issue not just in Chinese politics but in international relations because the Americans are still interested in the status of Taiwan. Japan is as well and the last thing many Asian countries and indeed countries further afield want is an extension of Chinese political, economic and military influence of the kind uh, that would come if they were able to overcome Taiwan.
2: And actually in taiwan itself what what is the popular view there? Do, do people want to be part of China do they want to do they still have aspirations to be the legitimate China or do they see themselves as a separate independent country
3: there's a wide diversity of opinion in Taiwan as you 'd expect given that it's a vigorous democracy. I think i 'm right in saying that the overall view the overriding view is that the status quo should be uh, preserved uh, that there is not a yearning in any realistic sense for unification with China if it means the Chinese Communist Party influence and perhaps even control. So you might say that the Taiwanese would like to be left to get on with their lives. They would like a set of arrangements to be in place which gave them breathing room Uh, not only at the personal level, but allowed their state to function as an international actor in some way without being um, excluded from every diplomatic fora and prevented from having diplomatic relations with third parties, Um, that prevention being largely the work of the government in Beijing.
2: And seven decades on from the uh, Communist Revolution, how would you evaluate the successes and failures of that regime?
3: It's an enormous topic. And one has to consider so many factors. I suppose I would look at it this way. On the one hand, you have bystanders of individual wealth, individual health, longevity, um, gender equality, and many other measures, quite considerable progress. The situation of China in 1949 was poor, was weak. Life was precarious and, for the majority, uh, rather unpleasant. You have to, though, consider that in the context of the costs. The communists have wreaked revolution in China, uh, indeed, uh, claimed close to destroying much of life in the country. Whether you look back what happened immediately after 1949 with the elimination of the landlords, or you turn to the denuding of intellectual life in the mid-1950s, or the collectivization of land in the Great Leap Forward and the famine, or the orchestrated destruction of cultural and intellectual life right across the country in the Cultural Revolution. You have to ask yourself this question. Okay, China has achieved successes in a number of measures. Was it ever really necessary to reach those achievements by those means? I think the answer has to be no, it wasn't necessary.
0: That was Graham Hutchings. China, 1949, Year of Revolution, is out now, published by Bloomsbury Academic. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for a panel discussion on LGBT plus history.